back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. This week, we're going to go into the mailbag and answer a few questions. And, and I think that's kind of the format we're going to go for, at least for a little while. An episode where we dive deep into a topic and then come back and answer some questions, maybe share a little bit of feedback from previous episodes. And I want to start the show by saying thank you to my new patrons on Patreon. Thank you to Alan, Perry, Aaron, Timothy, Jay, Brian, James, Tom, Colin, and Gary, who all signed up to become patrons since the last recording. Thank you so much. You guys have uh, really kind of shocked me with the outpouring support over there. If you haven't checked it out yet, I would really appreciate it. Uh, Patreon.com slash lumber update. That is helping me to keep the show going, keep the lights on, pay for all the additional, you know, stuff, the overhead stuff. And it certainly helps uh, make the time worthwhile too. I'm not going to lie there. So last, um, let's see, not two, I guess it's two episodes when this will come out. I talked a little bit about Notre Dame and the French Oak, and I got some really, really great feedback. And I wanted to take just a second to talk about feedback because, you know, this is, this is a lumber industry update. I work in the lumber industry, have for the last 10 years or so, but by no means do I want this to come across like I'm the expert in everything and I know everything. And I really, really wanna hear feedback from the people listening to this, from other people in the industry, from people who may have some very specific knowledge on the topic that we are uh, addressing. And boy, did I get it. And it was so awesome to hear some of the feedback on Notre Dame. I heard from people about fire suppression. I heard from people in Europe about the, the lumber trade there as well. So I think we've got some great feedback to share. And that's the, the thing that I want because Everybody who sent me feedback, a lot of them were very apologetic, like, you know, I hate to differ and I apologize about this. No way am I ever going to be the expert on every single topic. I've seen a lot of things. We've dealt with a lot of different species um, at my day job at J. Gibson McIlvain, but there's also a lot of stuff that we may never get into because it's outside of our niche. Or in the instance of uh, French oak, we've done some research in in into buying it before, but nine times out of 10, our customer has been perfectly fine with American white oak. So we dug for a little bit. Could we have dug deeper? Absolutely. And that was one of the great bits of feedback that I heard from Mark Gilbert, who wrote in. And a little bit long, and I do want to read the whole thing because it's 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 really awesome. So again, Mark is in Europe working in the European timber trade. And he said, I, I want to start by saying that I've listened to your podcast for a long time, found them informative, entertaining. I appreciate the amount of time you give up to help other woodworkers and, and wannabe woodworkers. However, your episode on French oak is very misleading. And I love that he threw that little paragraph in to like to butter me up. It's okay that you disagree with me. And that's the point that I'm getting at here. Mark goes on to say, I myself work in the timber trade in the UK and deal with European oak and small amounts of American white oak. I've traveled to sawmills and forests in both Europe and North America. French oak, English oak, Croatian oak, and Hungarian oak, we trade under the name European oak, which is actually two species, Quercus rober and Quercus petraea. The chestnut, the, the, the chestnut he's saying that would have been used in Notre Dame and the cathedral, would have been sweet chestnut. It's a, a Phagaceastineus. Uh, actually, I think it's Phagaceastineus sativa. Oh yeah, yeah, he does say that here. Um, this is very common in old French buildings. I do agree that American white oak and European oak are very similar in look and performance. I also believe the size of the trees are also similar. 
You say European oak is small and only provides short, narrow, flooring grade stock. This is absolute rubbish. And if this is the only stock your buyer can get, you need a new buyer. All right, well, Mark, um, her last name's on the sign in the front of the building, so I don't think that's gonna happen. But this goes back to what I'm saying earlier about where we may have dug a little deep and then realized it's not necessary because we can use American white oak. So absolutely, this is an example where we didn't have to dig far enough. Mark continues to say, there's currently a lot of pressure on oak supply, and much of this is from the barrel trade and the Chinese buying it for the manufacture of flooring and other products. In a recent episode of Wood Talk, I actually brought this up. The barrel trade and the micro distilleries has put a severe amount of pressure on oak in North America. It's interesting to hear the same thing is happening in Europe. Uh, Mark continues, some of this material is traded with uh, PEFC, COC, that's a chain of custody, X France and FSC and other parts of Europe. <clears throat> so again, this material is being traded with certifications to, to talk about legality. You, this is Mark talking, you give the impression that the only oak trees left in Western Europe are uh, one avenue trees at Palace of Versailles. This is just not the case. The French have some of the best managed forests in the world, especially their oak. Finding material in France to rebuild Notre Dame is certainly possible. It would be a big job, but this would also be the case in LVL, which would also use trees from a forest. Very good point. To give you an example, I've recently had an inquiry for a job that was uh, 30, 26 by 12 by 12, 30 pieces of 26 foot, 12 by 12, which I found with one call. I also believe that the size of some of the timbers needed for the repair could be much larger than you suggested, possibly 50 feet by 16 by 16, which although not easy, would be available in French forests. The EUTR, that's the European Union uh, Timber Regulation, is a very strict process for which we performed isotope tests and all our engineered oak flooring that we import from China to improve the oak is from France. I'm not sure how you can stock Burmese slash Myanmar teak under the Lacey Act when it is practically impossible under the EUTR. How can you not find compliant European oak? How, excuse me, how you can not find compliant European oak? You're really not trying very hard. The EUTR is interpreted differently within the EU, which might be similar to how different states in America interpret the Lacey Act. This I am unsure of, and we'll charge your opinion on this. So again, fantastic feedback from Mark, from someone in, in the timber trade who's gonna have some firsthand knowledge of the availability of the white oak. So first thing, Mark, thank you. Excellent feedback. I always wanna hear this stuff because I'm never going to be absolutely right in the authority on everything. Here's a perfect example. Second, I'm thrilled to hear that there is availability in white oak and the ability to make one call and obtain 30 foot long beams is great to hear. Um, I have heard some good things about the French managed forests, but you never know what to believe. So this is another uh, resource that I'm, I'm glad to hear that as well. The isotope testing, yes, I do recognize that's going on and it's great to hear that um, you are taking advantage of that and using that. I wish I could say that everyone was doing the same. And as you said, you know, the EUTR is interpreted differently, different, different places within the EU. The Lacey Act isn't interpreted differently from state to state. The Lacey Act is a federal thing, so the states really have nothing to do with that. So as far as how it's handled in, U in the U.S., the, the Lacey Act kind of overarches everything. The issue with the Lacey Act, and we will dedicate an episode to Lacey in the future, the issue with Lacey is it is purposely, I think, ambiguously worded. So it can be very difficult to follow when really essentially what the Lacey Act is asking for is, quote, 
due diligence to be performed in, in maintaining legality. Lacey Act really primarily looks at local regulations. And this is really how Myanmar um, teak is, is obtained. First of all, there is a license required for Myanmar teak. Well, it's not entirely true. The, the, there was a license. The license is um, kind of sort of expired and hasn't been renewed in favor of a better plan that the MDTA, that's uh, the, the trade uh, union in Myanmar, has put together. So that's kind of in a transition point at this point. But the point of the matter is, locally, it is perfectly legal to buy uh, Burmese teak following local regulations. Things like the log bans that they have, um, uh, uh, transformation of work product in country has to be observed be court before it can be exported. So what Lacey is looking at are those local regulations, which is a little bit, I'm going to get editorial on you guys here. It's a little bit pompous because what that is, is the U.S. government saying we're going to interpret other countries' laws and pass judgment on our interpretation of Myanmar, France, Malaysia, pick a country, our interpretation of their law. It's a little bit, eh, well, American. <laughs> so yeah, it, it, there, there's a lot of, of room for interpretation there. But to directly answer your question, that is how Myanmar teak is imported because all of the local regulations in Myanmar are followed. Now, the one thing I can say, um, our buyer also happens to be the current president of the International Wood Products Association and literally wrote the book on Lacey compliance when it comes to um, importing of teak. In fact, she and her father, Gib McIlvain, were uh, integral in obtaining a license during the economic embargo to import teak. And our company was uh, one of the first people to have that license and to open up the trade to the, the rest of the world. And in order to do that, there was a lot of regulations that had to be put in place locally that were suggested, reviewed by an international board. IWPA was involved in a lot of that. So yes, we are interpreting local laws, but those local laws didn't exist before we came along, we, the royal we, came along and helped to put some of those laws in place that now there is something for Lacey to interpret. That's a very, very long conversation. The point is, Mark has got some outstanding feedback here that does bring up the point that there may be some white oak available. My question on the whole Notre Dame thing still, um, Notre Dame, Notre Dame, uh, still remains, does it make sense to use uh, a solid lumber like that? Which brings up uh, a voicemail that I got from Chris. Chris is a fireman. Chris knows a fair amount about fire prevention. Hey, Shannon, this is Chris from West Virginia. I was just calling, wanted to say thanks for the new show. Appreciate what you have to say here. Also, I uh, wanted to say that you found a niche with the Notre Dame episode that I fit squarely within. I am the emergency manager at a lumber yard in Northern Virginia and also a volunteer firefighter. And just wanted to point out that while I appreciate the possibility of using like-kind timbers in the reconstruction of Notre Dame, the European model typically relies more on fire prevention than fire suppression. So I think you're right on track with the idea that they're going to use an engineered product to prevent fire in the future due to construction types, proximity with other buildings, difficulty getting modern equipment in there. Anyway, I wanted to say thanks again for the show. I think you're right on track and, uh, oh yeah, thanks for not quitting. Very nice, Chris. I appreciate that sign off. It's good to know that uh, 
Wood Talk lives on even in this podcast, whether I want it to or not. So yeah, again, there's some interesting feedback from someone, as he said, fitting nicely into a niche there, both experience in the lumber industry and in the fire industry, services, whatever. So again, thank you both to to Mark and Chris for some outstanding feedback. Now, I also got uh, an article from a couple of resources, but uh, Tor, I think, was the first one to get it to me. He shared an article about uh, Visingsö Island uh, that was um, the Swedish Royal Navy actually planted a bunch of trees on this island for their ships. So I talked about, uh, what is it, the Force of Dean in England was originally planted for the British Navy. Here's another example where these trees were planted for the Swedish Royal Navy, and I specifically called for other examples there. So I'm going to put a copy of or a link to this article in the show notes because it's actually pretty interesting on how obviously they don't need that timber anymore and what what, um, steps are being taken to use the resource, but also not use up the resource. It's a pretty interesting article on modern silvicultural practices. So now I want to turn my attention to a couple of industry updates. Now, this entire show is called a lumber industry update, but there's a few things that happen that just really don't merit their own show, kind of bullet points, if you will, that have come up. CITES, the Convention on International Trade of Endangered Species. We're going to have an episode all about CITES coming up shortly. But CITES meets, uh, the board actually meets, or I should say the convention, actually meets to discuss admission of new species, both flora and fauna, to the various CITES appendices on uh, how well, how much, how much more they should be regulated. And now there was a vote scheduled and it was actually supposed to be in Sri Lanka, but the whole thing has been put off after the, um, the attacks in Sri Lanka. So not exactly sure when that's going to happen, but the um, submissions, the proposals, if you will, for what will be added to that has been live. The Secretariat has put that out and it does include IPE, Tebabuya seratifola, the entire species of IPE as a possible appendix to species. That could be kind of world-changing for the decking industry. It is making a move to put the entire Dalbergia genus, that's your rosewoods, in under uh, regulation under appendix two, as well as the entire Cedrella, that would be your Spanish cedar primarily, under consideration for appendix two. So there are some pretty big things happening there. Now, again, these have to be voted upon and um, what I found particularly interesting is IPE, the proposal was put forth to put IPE on there since the suspension, not suspension, postponement of the conference, there has been that move, that motion, whatever you want to call it, to put IPE on Appendix 2 has been removed. And I found it particularly telling, if you will, that the... All, all the secretary had said was it's been removed. No explanation of why, no explanation of who removed it. And unfortunately, I think all that does is show you just how political CITES can actually be. Someone put forth a proposal. Someone else said, no, 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 that would be bad for us. And let's talk behind closed doors. And suddenly it's been removed. So, you know, unfortunately, you get an international body together and behind the door things happen. So maybe, I don't know, maybe we don't, we don't want to know how the sausage is made in this particular instance. Should IPE be added? I don't know, folks. I think it's inevitable. I've been saying this for, well, shoot, I wrote an article on the McIlvain blog, I think in 2011, saying we expect that it will be added. And now we're bringing in a bunch of other species because IPE is probably going to uh, uh, 
go the way of mahogany. So it looks like the writing's on the wall. It may have been removed for this particular vote, but uh, it's probably going to happen at some point soon. A little bit closer to home, um, talked about thousand canker disease while this was still a segment on Wood Talk. Thousand canker, the quarantine has been extended to my backyard here in Maryland. And it's kind of interesting because they have gotten really specific on the quarantine down to very specific counties. And uh, we immediately started getting questions. How will this affect our business? How will this affect the McIlvain Company's business? Because we are in Baltimore County. Interestingly enough, the quarantine zones go all around us. We are not in a quarantine zone, but we can't go anywhere without entering a quarantine zone. The fact of the matter is, is the quarantine zones still uh, apply, or excuse me, do not apply to heat-treated, kiln-dried, uh, phyto-certified lumber. So it's not like the, the trade of walnut is shut down, but the movement of green walnut certainly has been shut down um, into Maryland, and the quarantine extends pretty heavily. You can find a lot of information about that on the Thousand Canker Disease website, and I'll include a link to that as well. So let's, uh, let's go into the email bag and answer some of the questions. I've been getting a lot of questions. That form is filling up quickly. Again, this is turning into Wood Talk again with a form with more questions than I'll ever be able to answer. But George asked a question about ebony. He says, I'm working on a project that originally had ebony inlay in the top of a chest of drawers. Finding 40 inch long stock proved challenging and expensive. I haven't used ebony in a long time and I don't remember it being so difficult to procure. Are the new sourcing standards to blame? What's up with ebony and its future? Good question, George. Um, first of all, let's talk about the, the spec there, the length spec. Ebony, the, the tree, well, if we're talking ebony, there's a bunch of different ebonies. Uh, Diosporos would be the genus. I think I'm pronouncing that right. And um, the trees in general aren't very large to begin with, and they are very, very slow growing. The sap is very, very creamy. If you've ever seen black and white ebony, you know what I'm talking about. It's, it's, it's black and white, absolutely. The sap is, is as contrast to the heartwood as possible. And the sap is often cut around to produce all black blanks for luthiers, like fretboards and things like that. So you, you generally get very small pieces cut out of larger pieces in order to avoid a lot of that sap. Uh, Bob Taylor of Taylor Guitars did a video some time ago talking about how that less than A grade Ipe ought to be acceptable because we're cutting away too much of this really valuable resource and leaving it on the forest floor because everybody wants all black ebony. And what's wrong with a little bit of streaking here and there? And to have an industry leader say that, maybe we can loosen our standards and you know maybe we can start to see guitars with a little bit more character in it instead of all black. Whether or not that's gonna happen is a whole other issue there. But that can explain some of the problems because the boards aren't very big to begin with and there's so much cutting around defects and sap and such to get that perfect black um, board that you're gonna end up with very small uh, pieces to, uh, to, to hit the, the racks, the shelves. Now the entire uh, Diosporos genus is CITES regulated on Appendix 2 which means while it's not endangered, it is in danger of becoming endangered if we don't start regulating it heavily. So many specific genera under the um, uh, the appendix, excuse me, many, many specific species under that Diosporos uh, genus 
are actually listed as Appendix 1, meaning absolutely no way in hell can you possibly trade it whatsoever unless you need to do some sort of scientific experiment and have a letter from God. That's the only way you can possibly trade that when it's on Appendix 1. So some of these ebony species, not a chance in hell you're ever going to get it. The Dalbergia, the rosewood genus, does have, have some alternatives that can be used for ebony, and many times some of those geni, genera, gena, species, rather, I keep saying genus when I mean species, some of those species, some of those Dalbergia species actually can be marketed as ebony, you know, some sort of regional name and then ebony, you know. Um, they are also on Appendix 2 in CITES. So when your primary species is CITES regulated, and then your alternative becomes CITES regulated, you can imagine things get a lot more difficult to come by. More importantly, things get a lot more expensive to come by. So the good news, I suppose, is uh, the Diosporos genus is very widespread geographically, and it can be found in a lot of different places, but you're never really going to net large sizes and it's always going to be hard to get and very expensive, rightfully so, I think. Um, it is a, it, because it grows so slowly, because it is such a magnificent tree, and because there is so much pressure on that species, primarily from the musical instrument trade, the luthier trade. So consider whether or not, when you're using ebony, does it need to be ebony? Does it need to be totally jet black? Can you have a little bit of streaking? Could you use a, quote, lesser grade of ebony or an alternative species that could maybe work to give you that same effect? Or could dye or some sort of ebonization process be done instead? Could veneer be used? Maybe you need to have that all black, but does it need to be thick, solid wood? Can you get away with some sort of veneer? So I don't know if that really answers your question, George, about... Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to get because of the regulations. I don't think that there's really been major changes in the regulations other than the fact that as supply continues to be heavily regulated and demand continues to go up, price is going to climb with it. Uh, next email. Ken asked a little bit about the walnut blight since we talked about thousand cankers in the, the industry update. Ken says, walnut is one of my favorite woods to work with. Prices have been shooting up for the past year or so, as expected due to the beetle or blight or whatever stupid thing is killing all my beloved trees. In your experience, how long do these species-specific crises last? I realize that some, like the American chestnut, never come back. But is there a general cycle to things like blights and infestations? Um, Ken, it's, it's really all about containment. And I can't really say that there is a cycle, you know, like like ice ages. It comes back every 10,000 years. The blights come on for a variety of reasons. Oftentimes they are, are um, because of introduced species and for whatever term you want to call it, natural immunity in the region can't handle it and that blight breaks out. Usually in the case of chestnut, there was no way to really contain it. There was no way to really track it because it was long ago enough and communication lines and things weren't set up back then that it just kind of ran its course. And unfortunately, running its, running, running its course almost brought the tree to extinction. And it probably will never come back, uh, to, certainly not to where it was before, but that was running its course. Do we expect to see another chestnut blight come back? Well, no, not really, because there's not really enough chestnuts in order to make that happen again. And here's the thing. These 
species specific blights are very species specific. Uh, powder post beetles really like oak trees. Will they go after other species? Yes and no, if they're absolutely starving and nothing else to do. But what we're also finding is a lot of those powder post beetles are, are, are dying out with the season. So as oaks begin to die out, the powder post beetles begin to die out. And containment and preventing moving those trees around from oak poor regions where the powder post is in danger to oak rich regions where the powder post beetle can suddenly go on a you know buffet, that is really what's controlling these. So it has become harder than ever though with how small the world has gotten. Granted, we've got lots of lines of communication, we've got the internet, we can hear about all this stuff, we can put these, these quarantines in place, but there's lumber coming from all over the world. And that what I talked about earlier about natural immunity being a problem, when you've got lumber being brought in and specifically bugs from far off reaches of the world being brought into North America or North American bugs being brought into Australia and vice versa, that can cause real problems. And mostly these blights come down to a lot of the city trees and highway trees that were never intended for lumber purposes in the first place. Um, managed forests for lumber, we these these folks are, are, are well aware of these blights and know what they have to do to contain them and to prevent them. And when things break out, how to quarantine them and prevent them from, sp from spreading. More importantly, nine times out of 10, what happens is when it starts to break out, we know that felling that tree and kiln drying that tree, turning it into boards and actually heat treating the tree will knock out that, that bug right there and eliminate it. So those managed forests are actually pretty good at containing this and preventing it from breaking out. But all of these trees that aren't managed in that same way, that is really where the issue comes from. And you get the, the arborist coming and taking down your neighborhood tree and taking it off to a log yard somewhere and that can suddenly infect a bunch of other trees right around the log yard. Not only logs in the log yard, but standing trees surrounding that particular property can suddenly become an issue. And this is where state by state, county by county quarantines are started to come into place to prevent the movement of those logs back and forth. Now, what I don't understand is how this is actually regulated. Certainly a log truck is regulated as it moves down the highway, but is you know Joe Schmo's tree service regulated as it moves from my house two blocks over with bits of a log in their, in their trailer. I don't honestly know that, but really that is how these things are contained or are these quarantines. And you have to be really, really cautious for, for us as woodworkers, have to be really cautious about where we're getting our logs and what state they're in. If you're buying logs, if you're into green woodworking, or you're into turning and you're using green lumber, be very cautious about what is that what, what is that species? Is that on a quarantine list? Could it possibly be infected? And do I need to think about maybe not using this or think about a way to eliminate those bugs? And really the best way to do that is by kiln drying it. And if you're wanting to use green wood, that can be kind of an issue. So I'm just going to uh, wrap it up from there because I think you guys have heard me talk enough from here, but uh, I've got lots more questions, but definitely please keep sending me your questions and please keep sending me that feedback. I love to hear feedback from folks who really are in the know. And I wanna hear feedback from folks who aren't in the know because that's always fun too, right? So you can use the form if you head over to um, lumberupdate.com. There is a contact form right there. You can fill it out. It shoots into a fancy Google sheet or you can email me uh, like um, Chris did with his voicemail. He recorded a voice memo and emailed it to lumberupdate at gmail.com. And if I can say, I am getting a few questions on Instagram. We do have an Instagram profile. 
I'd rather you use the voicemail or the form to send me questions because there's just no way I'm going to be able to keep track with forms from questions coming in from various social media. It's it's just a nightmare. So if you do have a question, don't ask it on Instagram. Um, if you really want it to end up on the show, better off to use the more, quote, formal channels. That's it for me this week, folks. Thanks for listening and uh, go buy some wood.